0: Australia, the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. Chris Dawson, APM, was the 29th leader of the Western Australia Police Force. He first joined the police in 1976 as a 17-year-old cadet, and he subsequently rose through the ranks to become Deputy Commissioner. In 2014, he left the police to head up what is today called the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission. Dawson returned to the police in 2017 as Commissioner. His responsibilities included not just leading the force, but, on an ex officio basis, he was the State Emergency Coordinator. This latter role would come to significance with the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic and Dawson played a significant role in managing the state's response to the disease. This month, July 2022, Commissioner Dawson retired from the force so as he could take up the governorship of Western Australia. It's the first time a police officer has been appointed to the role. Just prior to his retirement from the police, I spoke to Mr Dawson via the internet. We discussed his career and thoughts on policing, managing the state's response to COVID-19 and his vice-regal role. I started by asking him about his priorities for the Western Australia Police Force when he was appointed as Commissioner in 2017.
1: I think every incoming police commissioner obviously contemplates what are the big ticket issues that you need to address We've all been obviously involved in law enforcement for decades, but look, I set out really on a number of key objectives. One was to actually collapse all of the big, thick, pithy strategic and business plans into a succinct one-pager. And really, I just wrapped it up into what I call the three pillars of policing, and they are pretty simple. Enforce the law, prevent crime, and manage and coordinate emergencies. They're the three main issues that I wanted the police force to concentrate on. I called us a police force. That's what we always have been. And over the years, we've had you know, various sort of little logos and name changes or whatever. And I wanted to get away from the approach that I'd seen over the last particularly 25 years, where every three to five years, you change the colour palette on the plan, you put a new date stamp, you put a few more jargon, buzzwords in there, and you regurgitate the same, same, same. And to be candid, I don't read them, and I don't expect my staff to read them. So that was the number one thing, is to break it down into a clear, simple, unambiguous one-pager that the workforce could understand. And embodied within that are some matters that I can expand on further. So that was one clear thing. I guess to fully uh, answer your first question, I also wanted to deal with meth. And obviously, later on in our talk today, I'll expand on the national work that I was doing at ACIC. But meth being such an insidious, illicit drug, probably the worst we've all seen, was having such a massive impact on not only Australia, but Western Australia. We were top of the league ladder in terms of use consumption, because I'd implemented the wastewater analysis when I was at ACIC. And I knew that WA had a disproportionate problem with meth. So that was a key strategy. A third one was really uh, born out of you know forty six years of being in policing here about the challenges in policing Aboriginal communities and the relationship between police and Aboriginal people was one that was not just going through a, a same cycle, it was getting worse. And so i I made a deliberate move to change that, and I can expand on that later in terms of the Aboriginal police relationships. And lastly, it was to mobilise and improve our tactical intelligence uh, in terms of our situational command and really leap from forward in terms of basically digitising the workforce.
0: Did those priorities remain the same during your commissionership or did they evolve?
1: So look, they, they all evolved and were all implemented. But of course, like all of us, we got thrown that COVID curveball in the, in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic. So half of my commissionership, two and a half years of the five, was taken up and consumed by the pandemic. Having said that, policing, of course, continues for all of us. And so those core strategies about Aboriginal police relationships, the, the fight against meth, and keeping to our strategic aims of enforcing law, preventing crime, well, managing and coordinating emergencies was one of the three pillars. And of course, we had to do all three.
0: Some of our listeners probably don't appreciate the sheer size of Western Australia and the geographical and societal challenges of policing such a jurisdiction. Could you briefly discuss this and give some context to policing in WA?
1: So, look, the scale by geographic landmass, we're about a third of the continent, so 2.5 million square kilometres. We've got 12,000 kilometres of coastline. And basically, in terms of a maritime capability, nothing north of Perth of any consequence, so heavily reliant on limited air and maritime assets, and that includes the Commonwealth as well. Uh, That's been an ongoing discussion for decades, not just me. So vast coastline, but I sort of divide WA up into three sort of zones. We've got a highly urbanised first world sort of city in the form of Perth, and with a population, you know, just under 2 million people. yeah, it's large by global scale in terms of a highly urbanised, dense, population, but we've got a large space in which our oil, gas and mining sector, which drives a lot of economic success, but that is spread over a vast area of both land and sea, and then we've got the normal agricultural and sparsely populated population, but that's sort of also punctuated by remote Aboriginal communities, and we've got about 200 of those, and so You can leave Perth with all of the trappings of a modern city and fly or drive several hours into third world conditions. So it's very diverse and not without its challenge.
0: How does the reality of policing these different types of societies impact on the organisation in terms of service provision?
1: Well, one of the things you do uh, as an officer is you hold your right hand up and swear to serve the jurisdiction that you sign up in. And I remind, as I did with two squads of recruits I spoke to this morning, that when you sign up you swear to serve the entire jurisdiction not just the suburb or the locality in which you prefer so one of the tensions is in fact how do you incentivize and deploy people across a very very vast distances i mean you know it's further for us to travel across our jurisdiction than it is for me to drive to adelaide or fly to canberra i was doing that for four years and yet it's more difficult to get around our jurisdiction so If you're dislocating from your family, your network, and you're living in a a pretty harsh environment, you know, NT, Queensland, and to an extent, South Australia and back blocks of New South Wales don't have dissimilar challenges, but probably Queensland and NT are more similar to WA in terms of the vast distances, the remoteness, and the isolation from a community are really tension points in which we incentivise people through special allowances, special conditions, ways in which we can ensure that you're not necessarily going to suffer in terms of your work conditions. But in fact, the opposite, you can actually get a lot of credit for policing in some of those really challenging environments. So that that is a, a real tension point, but it's also a real opportunity.
0: As Commissioner, how have you found the challenges in relation to engaging key stakeholders in society, such as business, local communities, and Indigenous communities?
1: We enjoy a really good relationship with particularly the big end of town in terms of, you know, the BHPs, Rio Tintos, FMG, Woodside. Look, they're big international players, Chevron as well. We drive, you know, a third of the nation's GDP, so they're heavily invested commercially, but they also have a civic duty because they're often having to deal with native title issues. They have a a real responsibility to ensure that they're not just extracting profit out of the state but reinvesting back in because they've got to incentivise their own workforces and deal with that. So we actually have a very good relationship with them, and that sort of translates into not only good cooperation. But in times of need, for instance, cyclones, floods, they are very quick to throw assets, people and their expertise in to help police and other first responders. And so we have a very healthy relationship with them. And I've I've found nothing but cooperation, but it it all comes about with relationships. You mentioned Aboriginal communities. We have, as is well known, a disproportionate Overrepresentation representation of Aboriginal people in the, in the criminal justice system. And I stress not just as perpetrators or offenders, but as victims of crime. They are far more likely to be victims of crime than non-Aboriginal people. And then, of course, they go through the privations of remoteness, the housing, education, health, accessibility is simply not as able to be delivered in the same manner as if you're living in downtown Perth. And so that has with it enormous challenges. Trying to measure KPIs over response times and service delivery is not without its challenge, but it's all about building relationships and ensuring that it's respected, trusted and understood.
0: Similarly, what about the nature of relationships with other government agencies and communities?
1: You go outside of the big cities and the major delivery, there are three common denominators. You'll have the law and order generally through police and the court justice system. You then have obviously education. And the last one, of course, is health. So without the nurses, the teachers and the coppers, most towns really would be totally dysfunctional or simply struggle. And those three vocations, and I do call them intentionally vocations, they're all callings, whether you're gonna be a doctor or a nurse or an educator or a police officer, they're all vocationally driven. And so we must and do work very closely with those education and health sectors. The ones that we struggle with, and they're an ongoing known issue, where some of the other support agencies don't have as big a footprint across. So what has happened since white colonisation is that the local constable come, the local sheriff, the local bailiff, whether you're horse in, horse out, camel in, camel out, drive in, drive out, FIFO, you still have a hub-and-spoke type of approach to some of those other support agencies. And what happens is that, of course, it defaults to police more often than not. And so, you know, commonly you will see, going to some of these smaller towns and communities, the coppers are not only running the police station, but they're coaching the footy teams, they're running the food bank, they're doing a lot of the volunteer sort of coordination And then, of course, when there's an emergency, again, they've got a key cohesion role in making sure that the communities can be resilient. It's not to say that coppers do totally everything, but they are very integral to all of the communities. And I've made it a mission while I was commissioner to make sure that we do not leave any community. I've found some of the other agencies have found it too difficult to deploy, they can't attract staff, and so what they do is they they pull them out and they do this FIFO model from the regional towns and cities. And that doesn't work in policing because it's all about building trust and relationship. So I've intentionally left police there and resist as much as I can the FIFO model.
0: Can you talk about the nature of the relationship between government and police, noting police have operational independence from government, but they're accountable to it for budgetary and accountability purposes? For instance, how have you engaged with the police ministers you've worked for?
1: So the first minister I had, Michelle Roberts, a very experienced politician. In fact, I think she describes herself as the mother of the parliament. She's the longest serving. Very politically savvy and very supportive. But at the same time, she'd spent a fair bit of time in opposition. So I'd had a relationship. I I was a deputy commissioner for 10 years. So I've been appointed under a, a Labor government, but spent most of our time as a deputy under a liberal coalition government. Then, of course, going to Canberra, as I'll talk about later, I went under a a Liberal National Coalition and then came back to our Labor government here. What I'm basically saying is that you've got to be ruthlessly apolitical as a senior executive and as a commissioner or any senior executive. You can't be partisan to any of those politics. I've always strongly resisted that. Having worked for, you know, all different parties, you work for the government of the day. So I found both the First Minister and my current Police Minister, he comes from a strong defence background, so he'd had some SF, Special Forces experience, was a native clearance diver, had literally been to war. He understands very much the ethos of policing in terms of its capacity to actually not only capture your hearts and minds, but he understands very, very well the importance of building strong teams and culture, and I've found him just as supportive as the previous minister, and I've had no difficulty in the separation of powers. In fact, it's strengthened over COVID, and I'll expand on why I I believe the political situation is strengthened through COVID.
0: Well, let's talk about COVID. Every jurisdiction in Australia had a slightly different experience with the pandemic, Uh, WA largely kept the virus out for two years, and you had more than one hat in regards to their response to the pandemic. Can you talk about the state's unique experience?
1: You're right. I mean, because of our vastness, we had the capacity to geographically put very strict border controls in place. Now, that incurred a fair bit of criticism and observation from other parts of Australia. There's a lot of political sparring that occurred on there. But the blunt reality of it is we were able to keep COVID out for about two years, and we had literally no spread at all. So for a, a two-year period, we had a total of nine deaths. One of them was a person that contracted it uh, locally. The other eight were people who had contracted it off cruise ships offshore and were repatriated back to Australia. So basically we had, in a two-year period, one death. It was remarkable on a world scale, And while the Premier, myself and others, copped a bit of criticism for putting in hard borders, those borders worked and and they were able to allow us to build a strong resilience in terms of all of the necessities to actually combat this pandemic. And then when we have relaxed the borders, we've been able to manage it. The health system hasn't been overwhelmed. And in fact, it's been proportionally much, much lower than the modelling predicted by... The epidemiologists couldn't even say that word two years ago and we're now in a situation where we're coming off the back end of our peak why i cite that as important politically is that my role apart from police commissioner and similar to other commissioners around the country is that i'm also the state emergency coordinator under our emergency legislation so that really gave me unfettered powers as a commissioner to you know, not only put very strict social health measures in place on the advice of the Chief Health Officer, but to restrict movements. We stopped about a million vehicles over various phases of the pandemic. We had obviously a massive drop in the the number of air travellers and we put in place quite innovative digital technologies uh, such as our G2G pass and were able to process several million applications because i'd rolled out our iphone mobility several months beforehand we quickly digitized the whole workforce and of course people then became accustomed to using qr codes and i know we're not orphans with this that's also happened in other parts of australia but we were able to know with precision exactly who was coming into the state where they were going and then we went further and used facial recognition to actually enable people to take selfies basically at home in quarantine. And we did then didn't have to go and door knock to make sure they weren't breaching their quarantine. So by people taking selfies, they were able to actually then confirm geocode to us that they were home. Those that breached, we breached. And the benefit of doing that was that we basically policed by consent. And so out of that, you know, two and a half years, we had the lowest proportionate number of persons who were infringed or arrested across the country by a large margin. And I described to my officers as you're working with and to the community, not at them. And in that way, it really is a consent-based model. And said, look, they're your neighbours, they're your mums, they're your dads, your cousins, your workmates, people down at the footy club. You know, we just need to work with them. And, you know, one of the maxims I used was, I'd rather give out a mask than give out a fine, And the troops responded fantastically. What we've had is overwhelming feedback from the community to say thank you for protecting us. And so the West Australian community responded very well to that. And I think politically, the Premier and his government took a lot of confidence that if they threw the police a problem, the men and women in our team just responded so well, I'm so proud of them, that they were able to deliver what really the state was seeking, and that was just keep this pandemic away from us for as long as you can until we're ready to actually uh, try and deal with it. And I think that's been a, a massive uptick for community confidence in police.
0: Every commissioner comes to the role having their own unique journey. In your case, you started policing at a very young age. You rose through the ranks of the force before you led a Commonwealth law enforcement agency for four years. How did this journey prepare you for the role of commissioner?
1: Look, I'd probably do it in a chronological way, Jason. I did what most coppers did. I went city, went bush. I basically found every three or four years I'd swap portfolios, really, because I just wanted to experience everything. And I found that by moving between portfolios, you get a broader general duties. You do both country and city work, going to criminal investigation for a period of time. I then went to detective training for a while, back into policy areas in our legal area, back out into the districts. And by chopping and changing, I just found that there was a new challenge to be had. And I found that really enriching as a career and dynamic as a career. And so when I felt that I'd had a crack at that, I wanted to try and explore another area. And Eventually, we went from the old seniority-based system and I was one of the, in fact, I was the first coming through on our merit-based system, and I got rapidly promoted from superintendent to deputy commissioner, and that was a time of quite transformational change. We just had a royal commission. We needed to actually do some pretty heavy spade work, so we we actually changed 80 of the top 80 positions with a spill and fill, and that gave us a, a totally new team and then as i uh, had experienced that as deputy level the commonwealth came tapping on the shoulder after a number of years and i initially didn't want to go to canberra i was actually quite happy in my dunheep to be blunt i i didn't covet the job as commissioner i actually thought i had the ideal job i was still involved in operations as a deputy and i loved it i didn't have to kiss babies as much as you do as a commissioner uh, metaphorically speaking and i was quite content but look i I initially said no to the Commonwealth, but I was persuaded that, in fact, there would be a new challenge there. And so amalgamating the ACIC from its gestation as the Australian Crime Commission, which was what my substantive role was on first appointment, and then combining CrimTrack with all the various forensic and data collections that that agency had. And then, of course, with the Australian Institute of Criminology, infusing them together into the ACIC, gave me broader exposure on the international front. So for those that are, not those listening that aren't familiar with the ACIC's mandate, it's basically dealing with serious and organised crime with special powers of examination akin to a Royal Commission type powers. We were employing about five or six Supreme Court or ex-Attorney Generals who basically had secret commission type powers, quite strictly governed. And then, of course, we had during that period, Iceland running rampant with foreign fighters leaving Australia and returning to Australia. So that was another element of it and a large part to deal with drug trafficking and money laundering. So, look, a really interesting job and it requires you to work across all Australian law enforcement and importantly, international law enforcement. And that was a great experience for my four winters in Canberra, as I described it.
0: On a day-to-day basis, what's the job of commissioner like? How much of your day is shaped by events and how much of your day do you get to shape?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Look, COVID's a different space. I mean, you know, people often ask me, oh, how's your work-life balance? And you know, look, I'm either blessed or cursed with not much sleep. But I think that comes with the job of commissioner. You just have to deal with what's on your plate. And while COVID has been particularly you know, taxing for all of us, in your role as state emergency coordinator, You do have, of course, the police force to run still, but you have the additional challenge of bringing in all the other government and non-government agencies and coordinate their efforts. Some of them, to be blunt, struggled big time. The other agencies, they weren't used to responding to really curveball dynamics in terms of both rapidly deploying, stepping up, whereas police around the country were used to this. We're dealing with Problem-solving all the time, and so for us, as an emergency response agency, you know our people adapted very quickly. But others, and I think I'm committed to say this, because I'll give myself permission to do it. Even the big departments like health struggled big time, because it was out of the norm for them, and they weren't used to acting so dynamically. So that leaving that aside, the role as commissioner is different than that of a deputy. I've obviously experienced both. As I touched on earlier, in the deputy role, you still have the day-to-day leaders to to move in terms of both people, assets, and for instance crime strategies. As commissioner, you're more dealing with the political apparatus and world that you live in. You've got to get your business cases and strategies right. At the same time, you can't take your hands totally off the tiller in terms of the policing operations because if it goes pear-shaped, you know, you're still the commissioner of the day and you have to respond as commissioner. So that really means that while there's a separation between the role of a deputy and assistant commissioners and commissioners, it is different, and I'm quite open about this, that when you're deputy, you have a bit more liberty, and ultimately, if that stuff hits the fan, they come looking for the commissioner not the Deputy or the ACs. And that's not so they don't abrogate their responsibilities, they don't, they, they, you know, they, they do as much as they can. But ultimately, the media will come to you, the Minister or the Premier or the Attorney-General or the Treasurer, they'll all come to the Commissioner. And so you've got to make sure that, one, you're across your brief, but two, that your team are fully doing as much as they can to support. And, you know, I, I think all of us, I certainly am, blessed with really credentialed, experienced people who understand that there's a step change from running a district or running a portfolio. When you're running the entire agency, you need all hands on deck and you're heavily reliant on your team producing what you need to do as commissioner. But as commissioner, you've still got to set that direction and make sure that they've they've got the right assets, the right resources and the right strategies.
0: For tomorrow's police leaders, what are your thoughts about the requirements of policing into the future? Uh, What will change or will not change in the next five to ten years?
1: Well, look, I'm going to probably respond possibly differently than you expected. What should not change is your value set because, you know, you can throw more technology, more weapons, you know, more sharper strategies and, and operational targets, but if your value set's not right, your foundation for policing is going to crumble. So whenever I speak to my staff and speak to other agencies, I always talk about our four key values. And that's about duty, which means basically do your job. Teamwork, you've got to work in a team environment, whether it's internally or whether it's other agencies. Integrity, well that goes with every agency. And, And the last one is care, care for not only your partners, your colleagues, your families, but also care clearly for your victims and the stakeholders you deal with. So my response to that question, Jason, is get your value set embedded, make sure that that drives the way you do your business. Other things will happen. You know, I, I know that with the rapidity of technological change, technology, of course, is going to even more rapidly evolve. So that is a present but ongoing challenge. I see the socio-political environment that we now live in. It's a much smaller world. It's much more heavily networked. So, you know, you can get hooked up on crypto uh, technology and bitcoins and all sorts of latest sort of wizardry that happens. But the fundamentals of policing won't change. And that is you've got to enforce the law. You've got to do it in a manner that coordinates and manages emergencies. And you've got to do as much as you can to prevent crime. So I think those pillars and the foundations on a value set are more important than some of the things that will come over the horizon at us because there will always be new things. And I guess over the four decades, I've learned that there'll always be another fresh challenge. There'll be a new psychocentric drug that will get thrown at us. There'll be a new crime type because crooks will always be crooks and thieves will always be thieves. They'll just find different ways of doing it. But it's about making sure you've got your foundations right and making sure your relationships are right. I think that that is really what I'd say to a young officer today. Get the basics right, and then we'll digitise and and get as clever as we can and use the technology. Great, but don't lose your fundamentals.
0: So far in your career, what posting have you found the most challenging and which posting have you had the most fun in?
1: (laughs) I actually found district police work the most challenging and the most fun. It's what I came through the front door to do. I guess in a selfish way, when you're running a district command, you've got so many operational levers that you can throw people at real everyday present problems, and you can see an immediate divvy for your effort. And that's what drove me through the front door. It's what's kept me here. And i found that to be the most professionally rewarding it's also an environment where a lot of probationary constables and young detectives come and, and learn their tradecraft, And I think developing and honing their skills and showing them what you've learned from your experience and then seeing them grow from you know, pedestrians into runners, I found to be the most professionally rewarding and also the most satisfying.
0: Can I ask about your future? You've been given the rare honour of taking up a vice-regal appointment as Governor of Western Australia. How has your career prepared you for this, and what will be your priorities?
1: Well, look, it's obviously not a job, again, that you apply for. Look, I've got little doubt that my exposure through the COVID-19 pandemic has, I guess, positioned the government to see what police more broadly can do. I actually see it as an honour on behalf of the policing profession. Yes, it's obviously an honour and a privilege, and not one that I at all try and downplay. It's a massive individual honour. What I see though, it's the result of a great team effort. I just happened to be the privileged commissioner at the time when police, I think, were so prominent in responding to this state of emergency. That's one thing. But what I do see in being able to bring it forward, there are elements of the vice regal role, such as the executive council, the administration, the Royal Assent for Laws, all those important sort of constitutional roles I think are, are understood by a senior executive, um, so I don't have too much of a challenge with that. I don't intend dismissing governments at this point in time. But at the same time, there is an important ceremonial and the investitures for people that have exhibited enormous bravery or volunteer work over decades. I look forward to that. Obviously, as commissioners, you get involved with a lot of those sort of ceremonial and procedural things. But probably the most important is actually the advocacy for various patronages. And there are wonderful organisations out there that I'm looking forward to working even closer with. Those that deal with the underprivileged, you know, the food banks, the Red Crosses, the Aboriginal welfare organisations, there's a whole myriad of them, that a lot of them are unheralded. And there's an opportunity, I think, to To really speak up for those people that need support and be really an advocate for those that actually make our communities what they are. I mean, I'm passionate about WA and obviously every commissioner would be passionate about their home patch, but it's a great honour and a great opportunity in which I want to not concentrate just on law and justice, but there's some broader elements, I think, across society that I look forward to be able to contribute and support as well.
0: Before we go, is there anything you wanted to raise?
1: Look, I often use sporting analogies, and whoever's listening to the podcast, let me close on a sporting analogy. You know, I think back of scoreboard attendance at the cricket ground, and these these are now obviously all digital, but the guys that used to just swap over the run scored, how many overs, and keep track of that. When you're an experienced scoreboard attendant, you know which way the wind's blowing, you know how the pitch is playing, you know when a particular bowler or a batter is out there or who's a good fielder or not and how the placements even go. But you're on the scoreboard, you know, so you can be a keen observer and understand it. What I say to police officers is you've got to get out in the middle. You've got to play out there and don't be the scoreboard critic. Get out in the middle and do it yourself and have a crack. It's a great job to have a crack at and I have little time for those that sit on the scoreboard and moan about how things used to be. I'm much more an advocate and a supporter of those that are out in the middle, even if they make a mistake. Have a crack, have a go, it's a great job.
0: Commissioner, thank you very much for your time today and good luck for your governorship.
1: Thanks, Jason, all the best.
0: That was Chris Dawson, former Commissioner of the Western Australia Police Force and now the Governor of Western Australia. The APJ thanks the Governor for his support during his commissionership and we wish him well for the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Policing Australia. Go to www.apjl.com.au to find out more about the Australian Police Journal and to access a number of podcasts, the current and past issues of the magazine. Till next time, take care.